0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and in this last week of the year, between Christmas and the New Year, as the year comes to a close, we're looking back on Background Briefing's coverage of the major stories and issues of the year 2021. Today, we'll deal with the persisting pandemic, which, when the new Biden administration took over in January after Trump's serial bungling, American deaths from COVID were at over 400,000 now they are over 800,000 after first the delta variant struck and then now the omicron variant as the race between mutation and vaccination continues with over 40 million mostly trump followers in the country still refusing to get vaccinated we began our broadcast on march the 1st of 2021 on the origins of covid-19 which still remains a mystery due to the Chinese Communist government's unwillingness to cooperate to determine whether the virus emerged as a zoonotic leap from animals to humans or as a result of a lab accident at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Joining us was Rob Wallace, an evolutionary epidemiologist with the Agroecology and Rural Economic Research Corps, to talk about his new book, Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. We discussed the role of climate change and deforestation by agribusiness, which is, which is leading to emergent diseases and the spread of pathogens into local livestock and human communities. Then we'll go to a broadcaster background briefing from July the 14th of 2021, in which we discussed how Republicans don't believe you have a right to vote, but you do have a right to infect. We began with the increasingly deadly and infectious strain of COVID, the Delta variant, impacting states with low vaccination rates, and the role of Republican politicians and Fox News in encouraging Americans not to vaccinate, with Republicans in Tennessee firing their top COVID official, Dr. Michelle Fiscus, for trying to vaccinate teenagers against the new deadly strain. Jonathan Metzl, a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and the director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society, joined us. We discussed how conspiracy theories have infected Republican politics and how Republicans apparently feel you don't have a right to vote, but you do have a right to infect. The author of Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland, we looked into how, back in December, Kaiser Health News and the Associated Press found that at least 181 state and local public health leaders in 38 states had resigned, retired, or been fired since April the 1st of 2020. And as the last victim of anti-vaccine politics, Dr. Fiscus, noted, quote, It's just a huge symptom of how toxic the whole political landscape has become. The virus is apolitical. It doesn't care who you are or where you live or which president you preferred. Then finally, we will play our broadcast from September the 3rd of 2021 on how the pandemic provides an opportunity to rebuild a new society, not preserve the old. We spoke with Adam Tooze, a professor of history at Columbia University, who previously taught at the University of Cambridge as well as Yale, where he was director of International Security Studies. He has contributed to the National Intelligence Council and he joined us to discuss the blowback from our unbalanced relationship with to nature and his latest book, "Shutdown: Down, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK Pacificus Los Angeles Station. So, background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial free, corporate free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Rob Wallace, an evolutionary epidemiologist with the Agroecology and Rural Economic Research Corps. He is the author of Big Farms Make Big Flu and co-author of Clear-Cutting Disease Control, Capital-Led Deforestation, Public Health Austerity, and Vectorborne Infection. And he is consulted with the Food and Agriculture Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And his latest book, just out, is Dead Epidemiologists – On the Origins of COVID-19. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rob Uh,
1: Wallace. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks uh, for joining us. And what do you mean by dead epidemiologists? We have over a half a million dead Americans, but I wanted to get a sense of what you were suggesting there in the title.
1: Right. Well, in the course of writing this book, uh, our attention was on the uh, specifics of the origin of the virus and how it's spread across uh, the world, the kind of uh, soci- its sociological context, but uh, kept coming up against what I view as to be terrible takes on, uh, out of the uh, establishment uh, epidemiology uh, sector. And uh, it's not that people aren't brave and brilliant in terms of the work that they do. But uh, much of their work is, uh, unfortunately, premised on the uh, assumptions of the greater civilization society that backs up and accepts the interests uh, that uh, have helped bring about the uh, pathogen in the first place. And so one can have the uh, the top-of-the-line epidemiological instruments in terms of identifying pathogens, in terms of modeling their spread and still, by virtue of accepting the premises of of the larger system, be unable to see uh, the causes that led to the emergence of the pathogen in the first place.
0: So, interestingly enough, there was a World Health Organization delegation that went to Wuhan recently, and my understanding is that China's top virologist had made the suggestion that COVID-19 didn't actually arise or begin in china do you know what he was talking about
1: well i think there's a lot of things in play here there is the uh, epidemiological evidence to uh, consider that is in terms of it, the, the disease's origins seems to be contradictory there's a certain kind of you know fog to it. Is a fog of pandemic in terms of understanding how this came about uh there is at the same time the kind of uh Cold War play between the US and China over uh, blaming each other for the emergence of the the pathogen. An attempt to uh, wash hands of of poor decision making, um, not just in China, but uh, around the world, including in in the US. So it's a lot in play in terms of trying to get a handle on on, uh, the virus's origins, but also in terms of placing it in its political context. And, you know, we spoke uh, about The title of the book: Dead Epidemiologists. And I think here's another example of that, in which you have some world-class epidemiologists uh, invited by the World Health Organization to investigate uh, this. But you know, to the extent to which their our hands are bound by both the interests of those who invited them there, both the World Health Organization and China, but also their own interests. For instance, you have. Well, let me back up for a second. You've got two primary sets of hypotheses. One, of course, we've all heard the possibility of a lab leak out of one of the Wuhan labs. I don't agree with that, but I do think there is grounds for investigating this. Princeton University put out a paper in 2013 that described the spread of the BSL biosafety labs. Three and four, those are the labs that handle the uh, most dangerous pathogens. And since 9-11, since uh, the emergence of bird flu, H5N1, at the turn of the century, we've had thousands of these labs built around the world in such a way that even a rare event like a lab leak where a virus might uh, exit the back door and into the local population bends toward an inevitability as its opportunities increase to the point that uh, it has so many chances to, to do that. So there is a real possibility that a uh, uh, lab leaks can happen. Whether that happened in this case, of course, is, is something uh, to discuss. But the problem here is that uh, one of the members of the, the uh, World Health Organization team is uh, Peter Dazic, who is the president of the uh, ECHO Health Alliance, which is an NGO operating in New York. And it has gotten money from both NIH and DOD to basically run what are called gain-of-function studies. These are studies in which the viruses are in essence selected for increasing deadliness. Now, the question is, is what is an organization like that doing? Uh, it's an ecology organization. What's it doing involved in uh, helping fund and take part in experiments that are selecting for deadliness in pathogens in a lab context. And that's not only in the US, but early on working with, you know, Chinese scientists from China and doing that in China as well, including at, at the Wuhan lab. And so it's really difficult, even as I disagree with the hypothesis that emerged in the lab, it's hard to take the WHO's journey that's visit there any seriously, if you're allowing uh, a member who was involved in the possibility of the emergence of a lab strain on the WHO team to declare that the, that the lab leak hypothesis it was dead in the water from the start. So that's a uh, problem because the, the context by which we are making decisions of, about one hypothesis or another aren't necessarily on the basis of evidence as so much as who's protecting what uh, pot of money. So that's the lab leak uh, hypothesis. I'm a proponent of what's called the, the field hypothesis, that uh, the virus emerged out in the field, and it didn't necessarily emerge first in Wuhan. Uh, it, it, in all likelihood, given the kind of genetic evidence that's been uh, collected and analyzed, that the strain was uh, circulating within humans for uh, a number of years and that uh, the spillover event from bats into humans perhaps with a recombinant event with uh, pangolin or other other food animal species along the way occurred several decades ago and that it took some time to make its way through the population and emerge Uh, by kind of immune selection in humans to the point that it could go much more quickly uh, through humans. And so Wuhan is the last station, as it were, for a long train ride between bats, humans, and then a pandemic.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Rob Wallace, who's an evolutionary epidemiologist with the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps, He's the author of Big Farms Make Big Flu and co-author of Clear-Cutting Disease Control, Capital-Led Deforestation, Public Health Austerity, and Vector-Borne Infection. And he is consulted with the Food and Agriculture Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And his latest book is Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. So if Wuhan okay. was the last stop on the long train of the genesis of this latest disease, You make it clear that these are the result of the global capital drive, the deforestation and development that has exposed these pathogens and that we are in the age of climate change and agribusiness. And together they exacerbate this condition as we intrude into the natural world in the most horrific ways. But just to finish up on Wuhan, How do you explain, though, and a lot of obviously hawks on this side and Trump himself tried to scapegoat China to get himself off the hook for his his Uh manifest stupidity and incompetence, but the Chinese only lost about 7,000 people, but while they contained it in China, they seem to have allowed it to get out. Is that a fair criticism?
1: Well, the the criticisms the Chinese do bear responsibility on on a number of fronts. One, they took the bricks road of capitalist development, and for uh, for good reason in some part, if uh, in the notion that they did not want merely the global north to determine uh, how they were going to develop their uh, resources and not just uh, allow a kind of extractivism out of their country. So they decided we're going to do capitalism uh, with Chinese characteristics and by virtue of doing so, they pulled millions out of poverty, even though they left, they also left behind millions in poverty. It's not for me to say whether that was the right call, but in the end, really, in the course of ex- uh, self-exploiting their landscape, it led to the kind of, as you described, the kind of uh, uh, extractivism that led to the increase in the interface between animals that are reservoirs for dangerous diseases and locals who are involved in the kind of a deforestation and development that is related to the uh, foreign direct investment into the country and also China's own objectives to pull itself forward as a capitalist power. Now, they, in my view, made a decision that in the course of doing so, there was going to be some damage and they have tried to clean up messes as they have emerged in a very post hoc way. So you have a multiple strains of uh, avian and swine influenza that have emerged uh, in the last 30 years uh, out of China by virtue of its increasing industrialized industrialized livestock and poultry operations, its uh, incursions into its the last of its forest areas, and, and so on and so forth. So the thought was, uh, this is the cost of doing business, and that they would externalize the costs on not just the, the people of China, but uh, the rest of the world. China's not alone in that position, of course. Uh, The U.S. has done that. Europe has done that. You know, the swine flu, uh, H1N1, that emerged in 2009, emerged outside Mexico City. Our team calls that the NAFTA flu, post-NAFTA. The U.S. meat dumped on the Mexican market and uh, basically changed the very nature by which hogs are raised in in Mexico, but also uh, led to the increase in transport of hog from the U.S. into China, and um, the genetics work shows that uh, H1N1 uh, emerged out of strains that were circulating from both uh, North America and Eurasia. So, in other words, we did it ourselves in 2009, this very thing that the Chinese had been doing, uh, have also been doing for several decades. There's a European example of that, H5NX, uh, avian influenza that's uh, been circulating in it's in uh, industrial uh, poultry and of course uh, ebola in west africa it went from a, a virus that would take out a village or two to, to then all of a sudden something that spread across three countries uh, infecting 35,000 people and killing 11,000 people our group's uh, interpretation of that is that it's uh, We've called it the neoliberal Ebola in that the virus itself did not evolve that much at all. Same clinical course, same epidemiological parameters. But in the course of imposing structural adjustment on West Africa and and uh, in the course of of allowing multinationals to come in and develop the forestry area, it increased the interface again between bats and humans there, allowing increasing traffic of Ebola spillover. So it's a long way around to answering your question. And that is, yes, the the Chinese certainly bear responsibility in terms of its emergence. It does bear responsibility in terms of its decision to carry the epidemiological fallout of that work as a kind of cost of doing business. But also China is not the only one making this decision. So I would actually call upon people to kind of avoid the trap that we've been laid for us in terms of getting us to uh, point fingers in a way that as if, you know, it's U.S. versus China, as if we're just uh, pawns on a board of a new Cold War, and to think more in terms of uh, that. Often these countries uh, very much uh, work together. I mean, we began this conversation talking about Peter Daszak. Uh, I mean, I have no problem with people, scientific cooperation across countries, but there's an example in which, you know, scientifically, if you are in, uh, in favor of the lab leak hypothesis, where uh, China and the U.S. work together using NIH money to lead to the kind of gain-of-function studies that may have led it led down that direction. If you believe the field hypothesis, again, you have these interlocking directorates between uh, the U.S. and China. Uh, post uh, the housing crisis, you had uh, investment firms like Goldman Sachs diversify their holdings by investing in Chinese agriculture, including investing $300 million in poultry farms uh, in a province south of of Wuhan. So uh, they were already involved, U.S. companies, U.S. uh, capital involved in changing Chinese agriculture that led to the emergence of new pathogens. So I would ask us to think, uh, to kind of drop out of the kind of geopolitical stuff, although, of course, that's still important, but to think in terms of how Earth is being foundationally shift changed in its epidemiology and, and its environmental course by virtue of these kind of uh, interwoven circuits of capital that connect one side of the Earth to the other across borders and in such a way that our group views uh, cities like New York, London and Hong Kong to be the worst disease hotspots by virtue of supplying the capital that drives the deforestation and development that leads to the spillover of these new deadly pathogens.
0: And just to finish up on it, of course, the capital investment flows both ways because it, Chinese own Smithfield, right, the biggest pork producer in the world, and they've had obviously have poor working conditions where where the absolutely. workers have been getting COVID. You know,
1: absolutely, it's a, and you're absolutely right. I mean, this is why you know, to, to drop out of the kind of conflict that, in essence, allows both countries to wash their hands by blaming the other, when in fact, the political class and the, uh, the capital they serve were foundationally involved working together to, uh, in essence, uh, though that wasn't their objective, but by virtue of collaborating on the kind of uh, development that leads to the spillover, in essence, work together to select for pathogens that are emerging this way.
0: So, Rob, let's turn to the broader issues which you have been working on for decades and written about, and, of course, also have written about in your new book, Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19, and that is the extent to which human intrusion into the natural world at the behest of agribusiness and factory farms, which are, I guess, also connected to that intrusion. That is where we already have a series of of eruptions of viruses H1N1, H7N9, SARS, MERS, Ebola, and Zika, and now COVID-19. So that is at the heart of it, isn't it? I mean, apparently I haven't. I've seen pictures, it, but on Borneo, for example, in Indonesia, you go through the rainforest and then you suddenly look out at as far as the eye can see palm oil plantations, that they've just absolutely decimated these tropical rainforests, and Mm -hmm. not only, of course, are the orangutans now endangered, but the idea that this is all being done, this hideous and irretrievable destruction of the natural world is all being done to make a product that's incredibly unhealthy in the first place. So can we do something, get an international ban on palm oil? Is there any way to stop this hideous destruction?
1: Yeah, I mean, you you are basically uh, asking us uh, what I view as the kind of uh, existential moment that uh, our species is having. I mean, we are confronted by uh, either continuing along a pathway that leads to the, the very destruction of humanity and the collapse of civilization. And, you know, it's a very grandiose declaration, but one sees... Uh, What is happening in in Borneo and and elsewhere, and one can help feel that uh, we've been brought to a moment where uh, we view, you know, quarterly returns as being realer than the ecology upon which we all depend. And uh, I mean, my view is that we're presently being led by a class of sociopaths, and you know, not in in the medical term, but in the sense of you know, our best and brightest are organized around uh, the kind of uh, exercise of political power that assures our very destruction. And how do we deal with that? And it, it it leads up. I mean, there are wonderful people everywhere, even doing incredible research, doing the right thing, even in some of the most ominous uh, organizations. I know people object to the World Bank and you object to the IMF and for good reason. But, you know, there's incredible research being done investigating these very dynamics. But, you know, the mechanism of political power is such that we are at a, at a moment where the system is not in a position to correct itself by virtue of national and international intervention, because those institutions have, in essence, been corrupted by the money that backs it. Now, the way I... See things moving forward is that we have to start looking at other means by which political power is exercised. And that involves people around the world beginning to find and look to each other to organize in a way to, in essence, uh, replace the present uh, political system with something else that, in essence, stops alienating or abstracting out human relationships from the ecological and environmental world upon which we depend. And so in essence, uh, there's a a matter of following the uh, indigenous ways. Uh, They've been asking us for telling us 500 years, calling us back to earth because we have in essence left the planet and to return uh, humanity and uh, into the fabric of the ecological relationships upon which we depend. And that involves a considerable uh, fight and pushback and to do so in short order in the face of the the facts of the matter, that we are coming up against uh, multiple environmental precipices that uh, could very well lead to the collapse of the civilization as we know it. So that is the true struggle. And you know, I always uh, speak to um, uh, young folk, and I apologize. I say this is not your fault, and but however, you are being placed in a, in a position of having to, in essence, bring back our species from the brink of destruction. And we are in a place where our very best and brightest are urging us on across these precipices. And the solution then involves looking to people who are often marginalized and uh, often are asked to bear the worst uh, costs of this damage and to start organizing across international borders and to, as one farmer put it, uh, it's going to take internationalism to uh, defeat globalization. So it's a generational project. Uh, it's not easy. I, I'm not opposed to you know, transa- uh, transitional demands. I'm not opposed to trying to get some world band on expanding um, palm oil infiltration as the Southeast Asia uses all its all its lands for palm oil, then we have incursions into a sub-Saharan Africa and into uh, South America. And, you know, I, I go back and I think about uh, when I was in third grade and I was given an assignment, I think, to do a report on Ecuador. And I remember even then we all knew that this terrible things were, were happening. And I remember as a third grader looking up at the global map and, and thinking about this and at least saying to myself, well, you know what, at least we have the Amazon, and the Congo, you know, the lungs of the earth, as it were, or as I thought as a third grader. And yet here we are, we are cutting into it, cutting it down. And uh, it really speaks to the terrible power that this kind of systemic momenta that we're caught in. And it's not going to be a matter of just talking to people and trying to convince them. Our group put out a paper modeling, uh, in essence, the a fight between agribusiness and public health. And presently, public health is losing. And clearly, the pandemic is a marker of that. But it bego- goes beyond that. I mean, uh, much of the damage historically has been uh, imposed by the global north on the global south, uh, treating the global south as both its uh, refrigerator and its toilet. And uh, that led to the deaths of millions of people per year by virtue of the environmental damage and the epidemiological consequences. But now we've gotten ourselves into a place where the global north is riding us, the entire world, uh, into the damage that we all face now. So uh, things like um, climate change and pandemics aren't just concentrated along the equator, they're everywhere all at once. And so the thought that we could just leave that behind in the, in the global south, which is an awful and terrible thing, is now something that can't keep us, those of us in the global north clear of the damage. The damage is now uh, coming back to uh, those of us who have uh, pushed it forward. And it's going to uh, require us all to, in essence, reject our lords and masters in favor of a a system that uh, returns us back to Earth, as the indigenous groups have invited us, and to repair the disparities between global north and global south. Uh, It's going to require us to decolonize uh, our systems. Uh, It's going to require us to engage in the kind of eco-socialist interventions that basically uh, make sure that people are taken care of, but uh, we also have uh, on, on Earth upon which we depend, uh, and that it's there and available uh, for us to continue to survive. Uh, I mean, I do not oppose appropriating things from Earth. We do have a right to survive, but that's a difference from that's different from expropriating Earth to the point that uh, we leave it in ruins. So, I wish it was really a matter of of a of a global ban on on some of these uh, plantation monocultures. But unfortunately, the problem is much more radical in the sense of down to the root of some of the the very assumptions uh, under which uh, much of the world is operating.
0: Well, Rob Wallace, you've really given us a lot of reasons to read your book, and I'm very grateful for your new book, Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19, and I'm grateful for you joining us here today.
1: It's been my pleasure, and I appreciate that.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Rob Wallace, the evolutionary epidemiologist with the Agroecology and Rural Economic Research Corps. He's the author of Big Farms Make Big Flu and co-author of Clear-Cutting Disease Control, Capital-Led Deforestation, Public Health Austerity, and Vector-Borne Infection. And he's consulted with the Food and Agricultural Organizations and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And his latest book is Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. We're going to take a brief station break. and We'll be back with a broadcast of background briefing from July the 14th of 2021 when we discussed how Republicans don't believe you have a right to vote, but you do have a right to infect. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jonathan Metzl, who's a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and the director of his Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. He's the author of several books and a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. And his latest book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Metzl. Thanks so much. Good to be back. So it seems like it's not just dying of whiteness that's killing the homeland, particularly the red states, you're in Tennessee, but people are dying of ignorance, willful ignorance, and ignorance from politicians. The states with the lowest number of COVID 19 vaccination rates have three times higher infections in this last week than other states where people are fully vaccinated. This is, of course, in particular Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas. Florida, Missouri, Nevada. I don't know what the situation is in Tennessee, but Tennessee has just fired its top vaccine official for trying to get teenagers vaccinated. How did that happen?
2: Well, you call it willful ignorance, but um, you know, I it, I I would call it um I I would call this volitional in a way. I mean, the the, the information is out there about the COVID implications it's certainly out there about the effects of the delta variant, which is more lethal, more infectious, more dangerous overall. Um, so it's not like it's not like that information's not out there. I, I mean I think at this point a number of people, not everyone but a number of people are, are making a conscious decision to get infected with a with a more lethal strain of the of the coronavirus And so um, you know that that's a choice that they're making. Um, and they're making that for political reasons, they're making that for ideological reasons. Um, and so the question will be, in two weeks from now or three weeks from now, as unfortunately and predictably the death rates really start to go up, do people feel like that was a, a choice that was that was worth it um, in a way? Now, we, we could talk a lot about the ideology that's behind it, and certainly some of it is about disinformation. What we see in Tennessee is People who are actually trying to get the word out and trying to inform people are, in particular arenas, in particular red states, um, being fired from their jobs. That's what happened in, in Tennessee. Um, so there is an information issue out there. But it's also like at this point in the game, there's no mystery what, what the COVID virus does to the human body. We know that. And, and it's just getting worse. And so really people, people are making this choice. Well, but patients always
0: listen to doctors and authority figures. At least that's how it's always been. So surely you can't let these politicians and the media, particularly people like Tucker Carlson and Fox News and those that spread disinformation, dangerous disinformation. I mean, some of these people may be willfully doing and willfully ignorant
2: and volitional, but I suspect a lot of them are being influenced. Well, certainly they're being, I mean, nobody had heard of COVID-19 two years ago. Nobody had heard of the vaccine a year ago. Um, And so these were neutral topics for the most part that are, that are shaped by different ideologies, but they, they, they tap onto existing beliefs. I mean, when I did my research about the Affordable Care Act, I saw people basically saying, I know I could be helped by the Affordable Care Act, but, um, but You know, it's more important to me that I don't sign up for the evil government, even if it's trying to help me by giving me health insurance and things like that. Now, I could say on one hand they're being influenced and they are, they certainly are, and and I think there's a culpability right now. There's a real culpability for people who are telling people not to get vaccinated. Um, But ultimately what people are saying is they want individual choice and they're ultimately, I mean, you know, in a way, I'm tired of arguing with people. It's kind of like they're making their individual choice and and, and I, so I guess it's a two-pronged thing. I certainly think that there should be better, more information. And to be honest, there's a ton of hypocrisy, right? All these people at Fox News, you can bet, are getting themselves vaccinated. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of performativity here. But ultimately, people are making a choice with the, with the information that they have.
0: Well, Trump and Melania got vaccinated in secret and so did uh, Governor DeSantis down in Florida. So you're right about the hypocrisy, Jonathan Metzl. But it feels like we're in the Orwellian age here, particularly when it comes to red states and Republicans, because according to Republican politicians, you don't have a right to vote, but you have a
2: right to infect. Well, again, that's why I said that you you can make the choice for yourself, but that's not how COVID works, right? In other words... You know, people can make individual choices. I mean, I guess it's akin to secondhand smoke. You can smoke or not, but when your secondhand smoke infects everybody around you, then all of a sudden it be, it's not just about you anymore. And that's kind of how COVID works. People can decide not to get vaccinated, but the implications of that are spreading the virus to tons of other people. And and so certainly there's a chain effect. Um, You know, I, I'll, I'll say empathically, you know, this the frustration here is that, I mean, that <laughs> we've been at this for like a year and a half. People are exhausted. It's it's um, it's 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 hard. It's what we're doing is hard. It's it, it's almost hard to get your mind around. You know, you think about the beginning of the pandemic. People thought, man, if this thing lasts three weeks, that would be something. And now we're a year and a half into it, and and there's another another wave coming. Um, but 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 on the other hand, the United States is in a the best shape right i mean we have access to the vaccine hardly any place else in the world has the kind of access we do so i don't know i mean again i study this and i'm feeling a lot of despair myself and when people are being fired who are actually the people gathering the data and pro- producing a, a kind of it's not just willful inter- ignorance it's like strategic ignorance it's it's almost hard to know what to do i mean i want people to be safe but i i'm feeling distraught about that myself at the moment
0: and again, I'm speaking with Jonathan Metzel, who is Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and the Director of the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. He's the author of several books and a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. And his latest book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. And what you just said, Jonathan, is echoed by Dr. Michelle Fiskus, who just got fired by the Republican legislature in Tennessee, for trying to get teenagers immunized, she said, the virus is apolitical. It doesn't care who you are or where you live or which president you preferred. And then she went on to say, it's just been a very difficult thing for us to overcome. And you just echoed those thoughts too. So it's pretty dispiriting, you know, and it also has a political effect. I mean, I think the Biden administration thought that they were really going to be heading into a, an era where Americans will be coming out into the malls and into the movie theaters and celebrating and everybody would be feeling good. But this new strain, uh, this Delta strain is with us. And uh, you said you're tired of trying to argue with these people, but don't they recognize how the death rate, which was so high at the beginning of the year, is now dropped dramatically? It's the cause and effect is obvious. The reason people aren't dying in droves now, as they were six months ago, is because of uh, the vaccination, isn't it? I mean, it's so clear. Have you tried that argument?
2: Well, again, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm not trying this. I'm trying this argument with like people (laughs) who, you know, I I have a lot of friends who are Trump supporters who I'm trying these arguments on. um, And and then I'm just kind of I mean, ultimately the only argument that I've found that works is you are an autonomous individual. You have access to the same information I do. You have the right to make a choice. I hope you make the right choice. Like to me, that's you know, that, that I mean, I, I, I'm 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 waving the white flag uh, in terms of trying to say I know something better than somebody else at this point. We all have access to this information. And I guess the the only thing I tell people is, I hope you make the right choice for for your sake because I care about you. I mean, that, that's really that's really my strategy at this point. Um, but I, I have to, I guess deep down, I, I feel like I have to respect them to make the choice. Now, th- that's on an individual level. That's my personal strategy. Um, on a on a political level, um, I've studied guns for a long time. I know that there's much more gun death than we know in this country. The reason we don't know, even though we should, is because the NRA basically single-handedly destroyed the research infrastructure about studying gun safety for three or four decades. So nobody knows um, how to to make people safe from guns. And so they're doing the same thing with COVID, not the NRA, but the GOP. Um, They're basically destroying not just they're destroying people's right to, like, make an informed decision, basically, by destroying data gathering. That's what's happening in Tennessee. When you when you fire people who are public health experts, you know, you're 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 firing expertise. Right. And you're replacing that with ideology. And so where I do think is a is a moral and and criminal failure um, is. To to destroy the the mechanisms through which we even get information about the spread of COVID and in, in the first place or the effect of the vaccines, but that's what seems to be happening in a lot of places. And for me, that's different from my individual life. That that's a place where, I, you know, I, I personally feel like there's a tremendous amount of culpability, and it's going to get more urgent as as more people die. I mean, you know, we're we're going to see a lot of people die here.
0: Well, but as a, as a an expert on the subject, Jonathan Metzl, you may. Waved a white flag with your friends, but that doesn't stop you from going after these politicians. I mean, the the local newspaper there in Nashville, the Tennessean, is reporting that Dr. Fiscus had just got fired for trying to get teenagers vaccinated. It's not just that the department is pulling back on its vaccination outreach efforts to children, but it's doing it for all diseases, not just coronavirus. So these this is like the Republican legislature in tennessee is being captured by the anti-vaxxers
2: yeah no it i mean it's 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 urgent and and it's catastrophic and it's just friggin' medieval honestly is all i can say you know i mean we're we're inviting back not just coronavirus which you can see that's what we're doing we're inviting back coronavirus now but we're also inviting back every other disease that we had found effective treatments for um under the auspice of ideology um and and this, this false racialized idea of kind of survival of the fittest and all these other kind of ideologies. And so again, like I, I again I, I think there needs to be accountability for these political decisions, for these politicians, for media disinformation. All of these all of these there's gonna be a reckoning for these decisions, again, as as deaths really start to accelerate among people Pretty soon here, um, unfortunately. But 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 individually, again, it's different from having conversations. You know, I, I think ultimately the conversations part is 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 difficult again because you're having them in the context of all these other bigger structures.
0: Well, this of course has been going on for some time, and it's right across the country this problem because there was a review published in December by the Kaiser Health News and the Associated Press that found that. One hundred and eighty-one state and local public health leaders in thirty-eight states have resigned, retired, or been fired since April the first of twenty twenty. So, you know, that's kind of when you mentioned it's medieval. It's, it's almost like witch burning, isn't it?
2: Well, and and again, the the sad part is, you know, Twitter doesn't speak for most people. Politics right now doesn't speak for most people. You know, but but everybody's caught in the crossfire, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who don't support these politics, but they're going to catch COVID regardless because they can't find a vaccine in a place like Tennessee. So it's it's just, it's just um it's dispiriting. I, again, people are making their minds and they're <laughs> making the wrong choice.
0: <laughs> right.
2: Well, so
0: the only way to, for these people to be educated is when they and others around them. S- Get infected and start dying. Is that what is that what it comes down to, Jonathan?
2: Well, I mean, again, I think it's important to note that they're they have an ideology. I mean, people have an ideology. Some people are profoundly health libertarian. They feel like they have the right to make every decision about their individual care. So that's one ideology we can debate. That um, other people are are foot soldiers in a in a much you know the narrative I write about in my book, where um, in a way control. Um, control for the gop depends on the kind of sacrifices that they're making right now so there's a very racial component to um kind of dying in the name of owning the libs or defeating the democrats or you know defeating uh social justice but you know there there are different there are different ideologies at play it's important that we don't you know that we recognize what all of those are but i guess that's important just because it's not just like getting sick is going to change people's mind i mean sometimes People get sick and it and it reinforces their ideology even more. Um, you know, all I can say is it's a hard time to be thinking about communal public health in in that environment. but unfortunately, um you know places that are doing it, like much of the rest of the world or um, you know the east coast United states, they're they're just having much, much better outcomes. whereas in tennessee we're we're firing the experts
0: and there are a couple of sentient politicians out uh, in Tennessee jim cooper and the i can't think of his name now john ray that, clemens yeah the guy that brought a bucket of kentucky fried chicken to here oh yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> there are a lot of people. yeah there i mean there are people What's his fighting name back again? of course uh, i i can i don't i don't i can't remember offhand, but there are people fighting back right there are there are people fighting fighting back i mean john ray clemens is another person that people should follow he's he's phenomenal so, um, then you've got Marsha uh,
0: Blackburn, the senator, now that she's totally reactionary right
2: yeah no and, and and again i and I think again, you know she represents an ideology, it's just you know we we've assumed we've been on a uh, on a progress narrative and and again you know she she speaks for for a lot of people a, a lot of people who feel- feel like they're making the right decision so again i i just i i reject the term you know ignorance or things like that because i think you know people are are making decisions they're not the decisions i would make um you know we're going to pay a very heavy price for these decisions um but you know it's just it's it's a complicated time because uh you, know, you would think in a country like communal public health would be the one thing we could agree on, um, but but that doesn't seem to be the case.
0: And they certainly did agree back when the polio vaccine came out. People lined up for that. So it's a very different world that we're in today, unfortunately. And I thank you for joining us, Jonathan Metzl.
2: Thanks. And, you know, hopefully next time we talk, we'll have some more cheerful news. But I, I would just say, you know, f- firing the experts in Tennessee is really, has really um, – really set a pall for, for many of us. It, it's a, a worrisome beacon of, of what might be down the pike.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Metzel, who's a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and the director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society. He's the author of several books and a prominent expert on gun violence and mental illness. And his latest book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back playing our broadcast of Background Briefing from September the 3rd of 2021 when we discussed how the pandemic provides an opportunity to rebuild a new society, not preserve the old.
3: I don't need no doctor Because I know what's in me
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Adam Tooze, a professor of history at Columbia University and the author of a number of books, including Wages of Destruction and Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crisis Changed the World. He previously taught at the University of Cambridge as well as Yale, where he was the director of the International Security Studies. And he has worked in executive development with major corporations and contributed to the National Intelligence Council. And his latest book just out is Shutdown: How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Welcome to background briefing, Adam Toos. Good to be here. So, in terms of the economy versus the planet, if you will. I'm reminded of Greta Thunberg telling the UN basically that all that they were doing about the crisis of global warming was blah, blah, blah. The one thing that happened during this COVID, and of course the COVID pandemic is not over by any means, but I think there's about a six or 7% drop in CO2 here in Los Angeles where you people spend hours every day in gridlock on freeways belching pollution into the air. That went away to a great extent. People actually telecommuted, didn't have to go into their offices. And there was a general, the air was cleaner, and, and in many ways you could argue things were better. So how do we bridge the gap between the metrics of economic growth and development versus the metrics of the planet itself survival?
4: Well, I think that is a, a, a trade-off that we are going to, have to make, but in in complicated ways. And one of the lessons of 2020 is that you can indeed crash land the economy. And if you crash land the economy, that will indeed reduce CO2 emissions. But as people have been saying now for many years, if we are going to think about an an energy transition, then we have to think about the issue of social justice. Basically, we have to think about how we make this sustainable, not just for the affluent minority that can quite easily imagine hunkering down in their well-appointed homes with good Wi-Fi and um, carrying on, but how we make it possible for hundreds of millions, in fact, billions of people who depend for their livelihoods on activities which expose them to to nature and and that will have to be adjusted in really complicated ways uh, to to a new world. Um, And uh, what we saw in, in 2020 was the epitome, if you like, of a kind of random transition arbitrary um, it hit certain people worse than others it, it decimated and continues to jeopardize the entire travel and hospitality sector which are far larger sectors of the, of the global economy than say auto production or something like that and um, what we saw was that that was also unsus- unsustainable right I mean we couldn't we couldn't maintain that level of of um, shutdown for any period of time it was ruinous to do so. So we found ways of restarting the economy because because it was necessary to do so you know it was it was just simply not not possible to persist in the situation that we were in in april 2020. so we've learned some tough lessons about the challenge ahead in terms of how if we're serious about the energy transition we have to go about it
0: well as we speak uh, adam too's the battle on capitol hill is over a infrastructure package that has to pass through budget reconciliation that requires the votes of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, and in the case of Joe Manchin, his family company is a coal distribution company, and it feels as if there's a rearguard battle going on between the old economy, the dirty old economy, and the possibility that inside this $3.5 trillion package, there's money uh, to transition to a new electric grid and to solar-powered generation along with, and wind power generation along with switching to electric cars, which is already happening, of course. So how do you get to the point where the recognition is such that the new economy has greater opportunities for making money than the old economy has for both making money and, of course, costing money because of the destruction it
4: does to the environment? Well, I mean, you know, my guess on this is not much better than that of In fact, no better than that of the of, you know, the many very smart people who've been struggling with this issue now for decades. Um, You know, the way in which Germany, for instance, dealt with its equivalent of West Virginia was to have, you know, an upfront, uh, out loud, multi-year debate about how we transition communities, businesses, vested interests that are addicted to coal uh, out of coal. Uh, and and you know formally agree that there will be a time horizon by which it will end, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the kind of conversation that's desperately needed in the United States, and would have to in, embrace you know Manchin and his constituents and all of the vested interests in that sector, um in his state. West Virginia is a tiny state, um and the fact that um and Joe Manchin's fortune is not very large either, so so the fact that um you know that should stand between the United States and an adequate well, at least pass, you know, passably adequate climate policy is, is really absurd. Um, And so it's a question of how you arbitrate, you know, and how you manage that transition And, and to have the conversation in the way we're having it right now, where we're up against some ghastly congressional deadline and Manchin is basically holding the entire thing hostage. And we should be clear about what he's holding hostage. He's not holding hostage the sort of crazy wild plans of the American left. He's, he's literally holding hostage the core agenda of his own president. Um, and that's that should be unacceptable. I mean, so so I think there's there's sort of three ways around this. One is what one is the intelligent compromise that the, the Germans worked their way towards. It was too slow there as well. But that, I think, is a model for the procedure. Another is, you, you know, find what Joe Manchin's price is because he seems like he's a man who might have a price and you pay it. And the third thing is, and it's difficult in light of, you know, American political history not to understand why this hasn't been used earlier is some measure of pressure on the man. I mean, I simply refuse to believe that there isn't, you know, a skeleton in his closet that uh, ad- adequate opposition research could not turn up. I mean, it's very difficult to imagine, for instance, a President Johnson sitting by and allowing this kind of thing to go on. Why, why, why are tables not being bashed, and why, why is Manchin allowed to take this entire agenda hostage in the way he's e- the way he is? And to illustrate
0: your point, Adam, too, is uh, the recent election in Germany. The main issue was global warming here. And, of course, in this, this country, we're arguing over where, whether
4: or not to wear masks and get vaccinated. I mean, I, I, one shouldn't exaggerate the rationality of the German political process. Um, it was certainly front and centre for several of the parties contending. And all of the parties there, with the exception of the AFD, which does command support in the teens, recognize that there is a human induced problem of climate change. So there isn't the sort of mainstream denialism that we see in the US when it came to brass tax, when it came to who was going to pay for what. But, you know, the Germans are every bit as protective as their motor car industry as anyone. I mean, they have, you know, more a greater vested interest. Plus, of course, there is the, you know, the culture of the autobahn and the uninhibited 150 mile an hour you know, 170-mile-an-hour freeway experience, uh, which goes deep in German society. One shouldn't underestimate how deeply attached people are to this. So an increase in energy prices isn't popular there either. Um, but you're right in the sense that it's on the agenda and indeed mandated there by the Supreme Court. So one of the things that that is really difficult, different about the German situation is that the German Supreme Court earlier this year essentially struck down the government's climate plans because it argued that they imposed too heavy a burden of adjustment on young people. Uh, And so greater urgency was necessary in action before 2030 so that, you know, the, the younger generations who will come into their prime in the 30s, 40s and 50s of this century actually have some choices open to them. So climate is institutionalized in German politics and governance in the way that it is not in the United States. The electoral process itself, it's a democracy. You know, It's a messy process like, like everywhere else. And again, I'm speaking with Adam Tooze, who's a professor of history at Columbia
0: University and the author of a number of books, including Wages of Destruction and Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. He previously taught at the University of Cambridge and at Yale where he was Director of International Security Studies, and he's worked as an in executive development with several major corporations and he contributed to the National Intelligence Council. And his latest book just out is Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And your book makes it clear that we're in an era defined by the blowback from our unbalanced relationship with nature and what is happening in response to the economic downturn from COVID is basically uh, we're not building a new society, but we're sort of rescuing and reviving the old. There is an interesting conference underway, I think it's sometime in October in, in Lisbon, uh, under the auspices of the UN, where they're starting to talk about the possibility of transitioning the peacekeeping force into a kind of global first sort of responders medical core if you will so there's some there's some thinking going on i mean i'm hoping here to find some rays of light if you don't mind some light at the end of the tunnel could that possibly work i mean this extent to which we're all in lifeboat earth together is that consciousness growing i mean you wrote a piece in the in the new statement about the new age of american power So we still have all of this military competition going on and a possible military Cold War with China. But on the other hand, what about the global sense that COVID, of course, means that if anybody in the world is not vaccinated, that's a threat to everybody in the world. So that should bring us together, and global warming should bring us together. So navigate, if you will, us through those two opposing strains.
4: I think that's a. I like the idea of, of thinking about security in a much more comprehensive sense and the idea of transferring as it were some of the peacekeeping operations and the resources committed to those though that they're, they're they're not really adequate in their own right but especially if you look at something like the pentagon budget i mean just think of the creative and constructive things one could do with 750 billion dollars not over 10 years every single year um and and what beneficial effects one could achieve for American society and American citizens, how, in a, you know, a real sense, the security of folks faced with drought or the massive storm sweeping out of the Gulf of Mexico or wildfires could actually be actually be increased if we resourced those kind of uh, facilities and services adequately. All in all, I think, you know, the, 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 to my mind, the, the world right now faces this really rather peculiar situation where. If we were willing to spend the three or four, or five percent of GDP that we currently spend, or close, are close to spending on defence and various other types of security services, if we were willing to devote that kind of money, if we were, at, if we added in foreign aid, you know, we'd be in the order of three, three and a half, four percent of GDP in most countries. If we were willing to consistently spend that on the future threats. On the future humanitarian challenges. We'd actually be in the ballpark of where we need to be for coping with, you know, most of the crises that we can foresee and currently cost. So, this doesn't rule out like mega crises that we haven't really wrapped our heads around. But most of the calculations say of the climate problem suggest that investment in the order of two or three percent per annum sustained over decades will in fact enable us to make the energy transition that we make. The, the Munich Security Conference people based in Germany, suggests that Germany should have a combined aid, defense, international assistance budget of 3% of GDP. So roll everything in, the hard power stuff, the tanks, the aircraft, the radar, the cyber war, development, overseas assistance, all of it should be about 3% of GDP. And That seems quite a constructive way of thinking about, about this challenge, because the, the the money is there, right? You know, when... When the Green New Deal people say that they want a trillion dollars a year, that's just a little bit more than what the Pentagon routinely gets right now. And that, you know, that doesn't change American society. Of course, there's a military footprint in many communities across the U.S., but we don't live in some sort of jackbooted military dictatorship. No more would we live in a sort of, you know, green vested, uh, climate neutral militia kind of world if that was the kind of spending we were doing. It would be present. But it will be a fraction of what we currently spend, say, on health in the United States. So its footprint will be much less. So that would be the way, the kind of constructive way in which I would think we might make some progress. Let's not exaggerate this too much, but let's focus on the essentials and let's use the outward facing defense policy, security policy establishment in a sense as a bridgehead for thinking more comprehensively about what security might actually mean. So instead of aircraft carriers, let's have hospital ships. Or if we are going to have aircraft carriers, let's have ones that can carry loads and loads of helicopters, which are absolutely essential in in emergency situations. You know, F-35s really don't help you very much unless you're fighting for air superiority or doing tactical airstrikes. But a fleet of helicopters you can use for all sorts of things, or transport aircraft, as we've just seen in Afghanistan. Those things are kind of useful for a whole variety of different purposes. So if we could repurpose, if you like, um it seems to me that we could we could we could be much more constructive in our thinking about what security means in the next decades
0: well indeed, the fleets of of c one thirty transports that the u s military have there's a huge number of them they could be transitioned here and certainly out here in California to be dropping water on fires <laughs> on wildfires instead of dropping bombs on third world countries so there was, of course, and you you talk about it a little bit in your article, The New Statesman, Adam Tooze, The New Age of American Power. During the Petraeus part of the Afghan quagmire, I spoke with one of his advisors, Colonel Cullen, who they had this idea of deploying armed social workers. Have mm-hmm. um, Clearly, in retrospect, nothing has worked in Afghanistan, but... Could you expand on that concept, or is that a flawed concept?
4: Well, I think, I'm not sure. I mean, the armed social worker concept was part of counterinsurgency operations, which were at their height under under Petraeus. And, I I mean, I think we've now had, you know, centuries of, well, at least half a century of experience with this kind of American-led counterinsurgency, and it isn't on the whole a very positive record. But I do think that building a sort of hard, hard in the sense of well-funded, uh, with a strong uh, a logistics backbone, a capacity for the long-range projection of medical assistance, of education, um, of ordering, if you like, um, for parts of the world that are struggling, a distress that need assistance with reconstruction. That seems to me a you know a constructive and interesting way of thinking about the role that the military military might play. I'm somewhat shaped by my experience of teaching at Yale, where I ran a course called The History of the Present, which which recruited overwhelmingly soldiers um, doing rotations in Afghanistan and NGO aid workers. And they sat comfortably alongside each other um, because they were both idealistic groups of young people whose primary motive in life was not money. Um, but were interested in, in their own way and in their own lights, as it were, being a force for good. It was genuinely the case. And, you know, they also got a kick out of it. There's no doubt, I'm sure, that operating, you know, a cannon on a, an, on a helicopter fills you with a thrill of power in the same way as some of the NGO and aid workers will have been getting a kick out of the adventures that they were involved in. But the motives fundamentally were, were constructive. And I do think that um, transitioning chunks of the American hard power machinery with all the technology and all the expertise and all the commitment that 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 apparatus has to a much broader conception of security and a much broader conception of development would be, you know, would be a welcome, welcome thing. Unfortunately, as you're saying right now, the impetus is all the other way. So the impetus is now towards, you know, super high tech confrontation with China. Um, which which gives this a very, very different aspect. Very light touch, you know, a lot of it is basically digital or indeed in space. It doesn't have very much to do with human society, um, but it's driven by the need to confront um, Chinese power in the military domain. And
0: of course, I don't know whether we have to look at the sort of psychology of the country in general, because why is it that the only thing that in this uh, divided Congress and, this highly polarized partisan environment, the one thing that the Democrats and Republicans agree on is throwing more money at the Pentagon. So, in a sense, we've all become conditioned to the idea of improving the redundancy of death at the expense of the quality of life. And that's, I don't know how you break that spell. But just in closing, I'd like to talk a little bit about your book which covers the span from when Chinese President Xi Jinping acknowledged the coronavirus outbreak in January of 2020, ending with the US President uh, Joe Biden's inauguration. The book makes it clear that, uh, that the COVID pandemic, as bad as it is, could be so much worse in the, the next round, which will inevitably come, and that the World Health Organization, which depends upon donors who often shape their agenda, Is poorly financed and is certainly not up to the task so what needs to be done in that direction
4: well i think the simple answer is more money more money more more commitment uh ever denser networks i mean one of the you know one of the more uplifting stories after all of 2020 is the story not of the actions of the who which is a Hopelessly under-resourced uh, agency, you know, buffeted by political pressures on all sides. Not because they're conniving and, you know, appeasing the Chinese, but because they're structurally put in that position. What else are they supposed to do? They have the budget of a, you know, they have less than a large American city hospital system, um, and they're supposed to provide the sort of uh, public health police for the globe. It's it's an impossible task that they have. So they need more resource, and they need to be backed up by ever-denser networks of medical cooperation, which, which we saw some of in action in 2020. I mean, the, you know, the extraordinary speed with which the global scientific community was enabled to move towards research on vaccines is due to the bravery of Chinese researchers and the encouragement of their Western collaborators in getting the original sequence of the coronavirus know, DNA out into the public realm so that researchers around the world could fasten onto it and start their work. That happened within days of Beijing, you know, finally concentrating its attention on the disease. So that I think is really a profoundly optimistic model. The question then of course is, can we get the political economy of vaccine production right? And can we get the politics of the coordinated delivery of vaccines to all 7.8 billion of us? Right. And that's where the story takes a turn for the darker again, because in that phase, uh, we're still a long way from having effectively protected the entire population, even though, as you alluded to early on, we we know full well, and this is not a a matter of altruism or charity. It's just simply a matter of self-interest that we're only safe when everyone is safe.
0: Well, Adam Toos, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Pleasure to be here. And again, I've been speaking with Adam Tooze, who's a professor of history at Columbia University and the author of a number of books, including Wages of Destruction and Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World. He previously taught at the University of Cambridge and at Yale, where he was director of international security studies, and he's worked in executive development with major corporations and contributed to the National Intelligence Council. And his latest book just out is Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Took the
3: kids to the park and disappeared by